esoteric Buddhist meditation practices, downloadable consciousnesses, the fifth dimension, extraterrestrials, crystal alchemy, sacred geometry, vibrational channeling, healthy lifestyle. We, these new generations, are creating a new model. We're not believing what the TV is screaming. We're trying to figure out what is happening we, these new generations, are creating a new model. Is it all figured out and defined? No, we're creating it. Exactly. And we're here live at the Conscious Life Expo in Los Angeles, California, figuring out how to live love fully all the time. What's on your mind? Christ, Christ, love, Christ. I once saw Jesus with light pouring out of his third eye in the most eternal joy. What do you think about extraterrestrial energy? I've, I've seen an extraterrestrial appear in front of me when uh, I was looking into someone's eyes. It was geometrical in shape and it seemed to be all light. How can we get that light to come to us? Just eye gaze with me for a minute. Christ, Christ, love, Christ, 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 love, Christ, 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 love, Christ, nothing else, just wanting God. Talk of a political dirt unit. It is typical of this government that uh, a dirt unit should be operating on me by someone in a ministerial suite in the Howard government. Embarrassing facts, uh, or factoids, or stories uh, on the coalition. And uh, the fact is, uh, as I've said to Margie and the kids, we're going to see a lot more dirt, 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 dirt. And welcome back to another episode of the history they should have taught you in school. So we finished uh, last time by uh, reading some of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which I mentioned uh, can best be thought of as the mother conspiracy, where most other conspiracies have emanated from. Um, and I only read a couple of them, but uh, you know, if you read through that whole thing, it's everything, like pharmaceutical companies, doctors, vaccines, universities, you know, being to, it's all the stuff, you know, you just replace liberal with the elders of Zion, and it's just all the stuff you hear, both in conspiracy form and in, uh, you know, opinion form on things like Fox News and Sky. Another thing that stood out to me was, um, was the whole like foreshadowing of a economic collapse that they're going to put everyone through, and this gained prominence during the Great Depression. So, you know, obviously, there was a lot of you know, a lot of grief, a lot of resentment, and that was being harnessed uh, and pointed in a certain direction. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it probably wasn't the Jews that caused that. Just a hunch, but, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it was probably more World War I mixed with, like, a pandemic, and then, like, in Germany, terrible economic management. I don't know, just a hunch I've got. Now, look, I haven't read this anywhere. In fact, I cannot find um, 
anything about the concurrent rise of Ariosophy and the protocols of the elders of Zion and how they played off each other. Because it seems like, duh, to me, coming at it from the angle that I have, but obviously that's how, that's the key. Yeah, like always, I mean, I don't know for you, but for me, whenever like the question has come up throughout my life in a, you know, education setting of like how, how the Holocaust happened, how the Nazis, you know, got in and whatever, it's always just like, oh, it was just like propaganda, you know, just hardcore propaganda. They had like, like murals of like, you know, evil Jews, you know, just on the streets and stuff like that. But obviously it was more than that. You, know, you can't get to that point without feeling that it has this religious significance. It's something that I've come to realize. Something that's really been drilled home over the last like year. If it wasn't for that religious significance, like there's these huge fucking wars and this dreadful, crazy shit. Like, I mean, it would still happen, but it, it wouldn't happen anywhere near as much. So it seems, and it seems very obvious that, so you've got this story of this evil group of puppet master, you know, elders of Zion pulling the strings on the world and, and controlling people's, you know, destinies or whatever. And then people start preaching on the street about like this religion of this great white brotherhood of uh, Aryan brothers that, uh, you know, need to be trapped in this, in this in this like Jewish prison of your life, you can ascend we can we can all ascend to the uh to the brotherhood if only we purify the bloodlines and it's like it's not a matter of like the Nazis outwardly just from the start stating like we want to just take over the world and do it our way at some point in the hysteria it becomes we better do this quickly before you know, they're going to do this, so we better get him first, put a stop to it and uh, have it be us. And I would love to consume some educated uh, musings on this relationship of the conspiracy and the, and the um, religious side of things, but uh, I cannot find any. If you know of anything, send me some links, dirtunitpod at gmail.com. Now, the 1930s America was a... Interesting place, and there's a lot going on in 1930s America that relates to what's going on today, and we will have to get to it at some point. But in the context of where we're at right now, in 1930, a offshoot of theosophy was spawned in America, and it was called the I Am Movement. Understanding Guy and Edna Ballard and the I Am activity is, in my opinion, crucial to understanding so much of the New Age movement. Where you shall raise up your sign and take the scepter in your hand and be the master of yourself and your world. While you can trace almost everything back to Elena Blavatsky in some weird way, it was the Ballads that formed the first real theosophy offshoot, and some even call them the creators of the first ever UFO religion. UFO religion. UFO religion. Encyclopedia Britannica. The I Am Movement. Theosophical movement founded in Chicago in the early 30s by Guy Ballard, a mining engineer, and his wife Edna. 
The name of the movement is a reference to the Bible verse in which God replies to Moses, I am who I am. Exodus 3.14 For those playing at home. Despite legal and public relations difficulties, the movement thrived and inspired a number of subsequent movements based on its teachings. Ballard claimed that in 1930, during a visit to Mount Shasta, a dormant volcano in Northern California, he was contacted by Saint Germain, one of the ascended masters of the Great White Brotherhood. Many occultists believe that this order of spiritual beings guides the overall destiny of humankind and speaks through human messengers. The first modern contact with the masters was allegedly made in the 19th century by Helena Blavatsky, one of the founders of the Theosophical Society. Writing under the name Godfrey Ray King, Ballard compiled his experiences in a book, Unveiled Mysteries, published in 1934, and he afterward claimed to receive regular messages, termed discourses, from Saint Germain and other masters. Because one of the masters from whom Ballard received dictations was Jesus, members of the I Am movement considered themselves Christians. Ballard's claim to have uh, received more than 3,000 messages, which formed the body of the movement's teachings. Ballard's incorporated the I Am movement in 1932. Following Guy Ballard's death, Edna became the movement's leader and revealed the messages she had received from Saint Germain. With her death in 1971, the board of directors, which had been established at the movement's incorporation in 1932, took control of the movement. Since then, no further dictations from the Masters have been received because no new messenger has been appointed to succeed the Ballards. Ultimately, each person hopes to ascend into the Divine Realms, as the Ballards are believed to have done at the end of their lives. The reciting of decrees, invocations of the Divine that call for the manifestation in the visible world of a desired condition or the removal of an undesired rebel one is the primary devotional activity of members of the movement. And that doesn't sound dangerous at all. But the I Am movement also promotes American patriotism. The messages received by Ballard suggest that the United States had a special role in the Master's World Plan, and members of the movement believe that Ballard was a reincarnation of George Washington. The group sponsors special programs on patriotic holidays. But so of the I Am movement in particular, they're, I guess they're like sort of main figure out of these masters the one that they're sort of dedicated to i guess is the uh, saint germain and saint germain sort of jives with christians because it's saint germain is a saint a christian saint but the saint germain they're talking about the ascended master saint germain he's actually an actual dude that is uh it's it's weird. I don't know why. I don't know how this guy ends up there. This is an article about the Count of Saint Germain, who is this ascended master. Um, this is in Grunge. Who hasn't wanted to live forever at one point or another? Seems like a pretty alluring prospect, at least at first. Of course, as Highlander, The Vampire Chronicles, and just about any other fictional work dealing with immortality will let you know, living forever probably won't be as cracked up as many first think it is. If nothing else, you might have to deal with endless confusion and wild tales, as the Count of Saint Germain would surely, surely tell you. Well, that all depends on whether or not the Count actually exists. 
By all of the more or less reliable accounts, he appears to have been an actual person who travelled about Europe in the 18th century, making appearances at various parties and royal courts. But some grew suspicious of the obscure man's many talents, good looks and learning. They started to wonder just what exactly was this mysterious man's deal. Why did he never talk about where he came from? How did he gain so much knowledge? Why does he keep getting embroiled in different political circles? Perhaps he was a lost prince, a spy, or even an audacious upstart who had conned his way into the upper echelon of society. But his story doesn't stop there. Some went as far as to allege that the Count was an occult mastermind who may have just uncovered the secret of eternal life. Could they be right? This is the bizarre story of Count Saint Germain. That's just the like intro paragraph. It goes on. If you want to read it yourself, just look up the bizarre story of the Count of Saint Germain. Goes on to say, you know, he could have been a spy, and then he could have faked his own death, and uh, that he is perhaps immortal, and then he's linked to a uh, vampire in New Orleans. Right, and that's all weird enough. But uh, this the coming together of the forming of I Am and Saint Germain was this, um, basically this guy, Ballard guy, just was like hiking on the mountain, claims he was hiking on the mountain, and uh, and he bumped, bumped into him, bumped into old Saint Germain in the early 1930s. Um, so, you know, seems legit. It is worth pointing out that uh, Mount Shasta, around this same time, was in the infant stage of becoming this hotbed of conspiratorial stories about everything. UFOs going to and, like, coming out of the mountain and shape-shifting around the mountain and, like, Bigfoots in the forest around the mountain and giants and other races and, uh, alien races and a city inside the mountain and this carries on until today and ramps up considerably over the decades in fact maybe i'll throw it over to the y files and there have been ufo sightings around mount shasta going back over 100 years and in recent years sightings are accelerating of the top 300 ufo hotspots in the world mount shasta is ranked 13th People have seen chrome objects hovering above dark mountain roads. Others report lights moving in formation, silently swarming the peak and then disappear. One of the most widely reported UFO sightings happened in 2008. Residents said they saw what looked like a giant glowing jellyfish hovering over the mountain. Eyewitnesses said it made no noise, but it seemed to have a fire raging inside of it. Now, unfortunately, there are no photos from the sighting, but just last year, someone captured this footage. This happened. I'm sorry. There's a passenger on the plane, looks out the window, grabs the phone. This was filmed in June. The traveler sees that, an object apparently changing shapes in seconds. What? This is basically an American version of Ariosophy, though maybe not, definitely not as race-focused. But, you know, it's a nationalist cult revolving around just this alternate reality of conspiracy theories, you know, with perhaps the same intentions behind it, especially the whole invocations of the divine that call for the manifestation in the visible world of a desired condition or the remo removal of an undesirable one. I feel like that's maybe like a, a dangerous thing when mixed with um, unabashed 
nationalism. We're going to have to go into this in detail, but I think like a whole episode would probably have to do it justice. But we went over last episode, the guys that came up with, you know, Ariosophy and, and all that, but incorporating it into like the whole Nazi ethos was the brainchild of uh, Heinrich Himmler. Himmler seems to have been like, he was like the, he was the architect of the Holocaust. And he seems to have just like been obsessed with conspiracy theories. So he's where all this conspiracies around the Nazis come from, you know, like um, all that Antarctica stuff and whatever. He actually went on a bunch of expeditions to try and like, he sent people out to try and find proof of the religion from like ancient archaeological sites and stuff like that. He went on an expedition to Tibet um, just to find like proof of this Aryan master race and uh, and like Antarctica and stuff was stuff he was obsessed with. And yes, they were like designing UFOs and shit, and they were also obsessed with with all that. There's a lot to hypothesize around all that stuff too. Um, so you know, we'll we'll leave it for another time. But it's all very similar. I guess is what I'm getting at. And I laugh, but it's not funny. After his chance encounter with the Count of St. Germain on the mountain in California in 1930, um, well, this, is, uh, this is the account of um, the meeting of St. Germain in his own words. It came time for lunch, and I sought a mountain spring for clear cold water. Cup in hand, I bent down to fill it, when an electrical current passed through my body from head to foot. I looked around. Directly behind me stood a young man who, at first glance, seemed to be someone on a hike like myself. He looked more closely, and I realized immediately that he was no ordinary person. As this thought passed through my mind, he smiled and addressed me, saying, My brother, if you will hand me your cup, I will give you a much more refreshing drink than spring water. I obeyed, and instantly the cup was filled with a creamy liquid. Handing it back to me, he said, drink it. Doesn't go on to disclose what, what it tasted like. Which is a bummer, really. Really left me hanging there. So he died and the wife took over and then she died and then um, it kind of just fizzled out. And they had replaced a bunch of the old occult laws of theosophy, and also one of the core tenets of theosophy, which was that to become a master, a person would have to ascend upon death. And, uh, and they changed that, which, as we have seen, is probably not a good idea. Back to Encyclopedia Britannica was uh, disrupted by Ballard's death in 1939. Soon afterwards, several former members accused the Ballards of teaching a sham religion, which led to the indictment and conviction of Edna Ballard and other movement leaders for mail fraud. In 1946, the US Supreme Court overturned the conviction. As a result of the lengthy judicial process and the subsequent bad publicity, the movement assumed a very low profile in the 50s and many thought that it had died. During the second half of the 20th century, it experienced steady growth. And in the early 21st century, it reported more than 300 chartered IM sanctuaries in the United States and around the world. 
The most prominent group inspired by the IAM movement was the Church Universal and Triumphant. Others, such as the uh, Aetherius Society, pictured the masters as officials of an extraterrestrial government who offer guidance from unidentified flying objects. I am everything about it. Not only does it, it um, sound exactly the same as all the uh, Nazi beliefs around Ariosophy and and uh, and the Theosophical beliefs underpinning it, plus the conspiracy theories. There's a book called uh, The Occult um, Roots of Nazism, and it, it explores all this. Um, but that they were also just heavily into like seriously into every conspiracy like it was the same as this i am stuff i mean it sounds like an american version of ariosophy to me and when you consider that the american business community in the in the mid 30s was a hotbed of nazi supporting wannabe fascists people like well, every big business leader from the sounds of it radicalized in a way by uh, the New Deal. It seems quite plausible to me that this was uh, maybe something that went hand in hand uh, with that. And I think for some supporting evidence for that theory, you can look perhaps unsettlingly at this man called Robert Lefervre. And Robert Lefervre was part of the core group of I am um, people because he was also um, actually was charged with mail fraud when the I am movement was taken down. I found this. Um, I found this. Well, it's just like a it's a PDF on the Internet Archive, but I I, I mean it checks out. It's basically a collection of um, of articles. Was I perhaps hallucinating, or was I in reality nothing more than a con man taking advantage of others? Robert Lefervre. Meet Charles Koch's Brain by Mark. What makes Charles Koch tick? Despite decades of building the nation's most impressive ideological and influence peddling network, from idea mills to think tanks to policy lobbying machines, the Koch brothers only really came to public prominence in the past couple of years. Since then, we've learned a lot about the billionaire siblings' vast web of influence and power in American politics and ideas. Yet, for all that attention, there are still big holes in our knowledge of the Kochs. In particular, what drives them and who their influences are. And that's a shame, because in the case of Charles Koch, his influences are, in many ways, more interesting and more sinister than the man himself. Back in the early to mid-60s, Charles Koch was just another 20-something oil heir. It was then that he first encountered a libertarian guru by the name of Robert Lefervre. In the decade or so before gaining influence over Charles Koch's world, Robert Lefervre made his living as a professional red beta union, busting and union buster and loyal lieutenant for one of the nation's most notorious anti-Semites. Working his way up the fringes of the far right during the McCarthy era, he finally landed his own corporate-funded free market gig, the Freedom School which his backers wanted to turn into the nation's premier libertarian indoctrination camp. There are plenty of secondary sources placing Coke at Lefebvre's Freedom School. Libertarian court historian Brian Doherty, who has spent most of his adult life on the Coke brothers' payroll, described Lefebvre as an anarchist figure who stole Charles Coke's heart. 
Murray Rothbard, who co-founded the Cato Institute with Charles Koch in 1977, wrote that Charles had been converted as a youth to libertarianism by Lefebvre. But perhaps the most credible source of all this is Charles Koch himself. In a speech he gave to an audience of libertarians in the late 90s, Koch revealed that his conversion came in 1964 when he enrolled in Freedom School in an intense two-week total immersion program in radical libertarian ideology, where property is the basis of all freedom, and the state, along with any public organization or even the notion of public good, is the very definition of tyranny. As Koch explained in a speech before the Institute for Humane Studies, the first of what would become countless libertarian think tanks under his control, it was at Bob Lefebvre's Freedom School where I began developing a passionate commitment to liberty as the form of social organization most in harmony with reality and man's nature, because Freedom School is where I was first exposed in depth to such thinkers as Mises and Hayek. Awkwardly for Koch, Freedom School didn't just teach radical pro-property libertarianism, it also published a series of Holocaust-denying articles through its house magazine Ramparts Journal. The first was published in 1966, two years after Charles Koch joined Freedom School as executive, trustee, and founder. Even if one were to accept the most extreme and exaggerated indictment of Hitler and the National Socialists for their activities after 1939 made by anybody fit to remain outside a mental hospital, it is most alarmingly easy to demonstrate that the atrocities of the Allies in the same period were more numerous as to victims and were carried out for the most part by methods more brutal and painful than alleged exterminations in gassed ovens. In gas ovens. Henry Elmer Barnes from the Rampant Journal. 1966. Holocaust-9 articles in Rampart's journal were significant enough to be included today on the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Holocaust Denial Timeline. Also, under Koch's watch, Lefebvre created a history program headed by one of the biggest names in early Holocaust denialism, James J. Martin. After Lefebvre's Freedom School collapse in 1968, Charles Koch continued to promote the works and careers of Holocaust deniers through his growing network of libertarian organizations including the Institute for Humane Studies, the Cato Institute, and Reason. As late as 1980, the Cato Institute was still publishing works by notorious revisionists, including Martin and Harry Armour Barnes, the inspiration for the neo-Nazi Barnes Review Journal, described by the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center as one of the most virulent anti-Semitic organizations around. Um, in the late 70s, Martin even had a seat on the Board of Trustees at the Koch-founded Center for Libertarian Studies, which described itself as sister organizations with the Cato Institute, with whom they coordinate their plans and programs. Next article. Today, the fringe right element has been wiped out of the official libertarian record, buried and forgotten, exhuming the lost story of Charles Koch's guru and demystifying his libertarian movement's ideology by setting it in its proper historical context will not bring progressives any comfort. Rather, the story that follows will confirm many of our worst fears about Koch's political intentions and should raise a bevy of new things to worry about. It also serves as a wake-up call to progressives who think libertarians are our natural allies, and yet who know so little about libertarianism's past, which has been lost in the fog of history and cultural amnesia. Then it goes on to uh, Lefebvre's story, uh, where you know just talks about where he was born and shitty upbringing and he ended up stealing from his parents and then went to Hollywood to chase his dream and was almost homeless. And then, oddly enough, it was at this very moment in 1933 in the depths of the Great Depression and of his own personal failure that Lefebvre had his first libertarian political awakening. In his memoir, A Way to Be Free, he recalled how his father, Republican hobo, first opened his eyes to the evils of fiat money, of budget deficits, 
and of taxing what he called the producers. I think Roosevelt is a socialist, his father grimly warned him. Coolidge and Hoover had the right idea. The fervor headed back to Minneapolis to his abandoned wife and daughter, convinced that his problems were all the fault of FDR and envious shirkers who were robbing producers like Lefervre and his father of their rightful due. Naturally, it was FDR and big government that saved Lefervre from starvation. Like his hero, Ronald Reagan, Robert Lefervre found a job subsidized by the New Deal's biggest employment program, the WPA, which paid a Minneapolis radio station to hire Lefervre and launch his career as a propagandist, product spokesman, and cult leader. The irony was lost on Lefervre in his memory. He is neither grateful for nor interested in the WPA program, nor in the larger politics of the 30s that made it possible for him to survive. Instead, he only thought of how he might please his abusive station manager boss. Word of praise from him, and it came on occasion, was the one bright sign in an otherwise flat and empty horizon. He later reminisced. Lefervre would do anything to impress his station manager, including joining a bizarre new cult, the mighty I Am movement, at his boss's suggestion. The cult was an advertising sponsor of Lefervre's radio station. During the 30s, the crypto-Nazi I Am cult became a national sensation, filling large auditoriums across the country, its followers numbering in the hundreds of thousands. Nation editor Kerry McWilliams went to an I Am event in Los Angeles and came away shaken by the spectacle of what he called the Hitlerian cult. At the time, the I Am audience repeat a chant for the fourth time. They were all shouting with all the frenzy of a mob of Nazis yelling, Sag Heel. The ballads led auditoriums in chants calling for the murders of President Roosevelt and the First Lady. Blast, 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 blast their carcasses from the face of the earth forever. <laughs> the shows increasingly turned into mass murder freak shows with chants such as If they be of human creation, annihilate them. Although Lefervre's time in the cult has been downplayed or spun as a mere eccentric detour by libertarians, Lefervre himself made it clear in his memoirs that his time in the I Am cult had a profound influence on him that carried through his libertarian period. To Lefervre, the libertarian philosophy he adopted in the 50s was substantially no different from the I Am cult teachings of the 30s, except in the rhetorical presentation of the ideas. One used logic, language, the other metaphysical. Wow. More importantly, Lefervre learned from the cult how ideas and tales, no matter how bizarre and disconnected from reality, can empower the priest and captivate minds. For this reason, it's worth taking time to describe just how bizarre the Mighty I Am cult really was. The Mighty I Am movement was found in the early 30s. We've been over this. Okay, interesting. The founding ideas and myths for their I Am cult were directly lifted from the pro-Nazi silver shirts movement of William Dudley Pally, a.k.a. America's Hitler, who was jailed during World War II and charged with sedition. In the early 30s, Pelly created the Silver Shirts, enlisting thousands of followers who were given military training, then armed for a violent takeover. When Pelly went into hiding in 1934, abandoning the Silver Shirts, Guy and Edna Ballard quickly enlisted his senior staff and plagiarized his books and ideas to create the I Am Cult. For instance, the late, in the late 20s, Pelly wrote a book claiming it had an out-of-body experience and that his spirit met the spirit of St. Germain over Lake Shasta. It's exactly the same thing that uh, Guy Ballard said about him. The I Am Cult demanded its followers avoid a bizarre catalogue of evils, including bowling, onions, pets, saxophones, but not harps. No sax, more harp, please. Also, no liquor, sex, family, and family members not given over to the I Am Cult. They even forbade followers from getting out of a swimming pool without having a towel handy. Sounds like fun. 
further claimed he came to the cult via a paranormal experience he had all alone in his radio station. It is as vivid in my mind today as when it occurred nearly 45 years ago. I heard a series of clicks in my mind. With each of those clicks, a question about ultimate reality that had baffled me had an answer. On the instant, every doubt and fear I had ever known vanished. I am was the answer. There also happened to be a workers' strike at Lefebvre's radio station. Lefebvre didn't want to join his fellow workers. His only interest was in pleasing his boss. To his disappointment, his boss didn't appreciate him crossing the picket lines to keep the radio station on air. He accused Lefebvre of betraying his own class and the radio station agreed to a contract with the union. This origin story of Lefebvre having a vision and going into I Am is very similar to another origin story that we're going to go over at some point. Let down by his boss, Lefebvre wrote a gushing letter to I Am cult leader, Daddy Ballard, asking him if he'd done right by breaking the strike at his radio station. Daddy Ballard gave Lefebvre what he was looking for, condemnation of unions as black magicians and an instrument of evil. He warned Charles Koch's future guru, the communist conspiracy was at work, seeking to undermine and destroy the United States. Daddy explained that people who owned property had a right to do what they wished with it. Lefebvre always had the eager bottomer to the rich and powerful. He finally found his master. Daddy Ballard was my idol. I yearned for his approval. I sought to be a better slave. He, uh, three years after joining the IM movement, Robert Lefebvre quit his radio job, abandoned his wife and child again, and joined the Ballard's travelling radio show as their stage MC. In 1940, Lefebvre published his first book, I Am, America's Destiny, claiming that he had once driven his car for 20 minutes with his eyes shut while his soul cavorted with St. Germain somewhere over California's Lake Shasta. Now as I watched and listened, St. Germain talked to me. He was real. The world I lived in was unreal, and he was the true reality. Lefebvre quickly discovered how popular he became by claiming this power. Women made themselves available. Crowds would gather in apartments to hear his dictations. So it goes, it goes on a bit, but it then says, Lefebvre's stint as a cult leader was short-lived. In late 1940, the FBI indicted him and 23 other top IM figures with felony mail fraud. Lefebvre immediately turned the state's witness. Charges against him were dropped, while Edna Ballard and his son were sentenced to prison. Lefebvre was, was alleged to have joined another fascist cult at that time called Mankind United, whose leader was jailed for sedition during World War II, calling on his followers to help Japan defeat the United States. After spending the war years in the special services branch, Lefebvre moved to San Francisco to become a real estate entrepreneur. And then... What? So he joined a fascist cult in another fascist cult after he got out of jail in 1940. And then he went into the special services branch to fight the Nazis. Right. Lefebvre moved to, after he did that, he moved to San Francisco to become a real estate entrepreneur. Built, uh, within a couple of years, he built up a mountain of debt that couldn't be serviced and declared bankruptcy. Despite being the free market guru to today's most powerful billionaire oligarch, Lefebvre couldn't run a lemonade stand if his life depended on it. Rather than take personal responsibility, he blamed the same forces that Guy Ballard had once told Lefebvre to blame. Communists, I was told, had infiltrated the government. They were casting a malevolent spell on the American way of life. Oh dear. And there's more. So his biggest asset in his real estate portfolio was a wino hotel in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. 
He protected the hotel from creditors by creating a legally registered religious organization called the San Francisco Group and donating the hotel to his religious outfit. Then his religious groups organized a property swap to get rid of the hotel, exchanging it for Rudolph Valentino's mansion in Beverly Hills, which was owned by a couple with known ties to organized crime. As soon as Lefebvre and his handful of I Am cultists took over Valentino's mansion in the late 40s, they turned it into the headquarters of a sex cult called Falcon's Lair. Newspapers across the country printed sensational stories accusing Lefebvre's cult of holding seances that ended in orgies. They chased him down, the creditors chased him down to Beverly Hills, but he no longer owned the hotel, let alone the mansion. Then the FBI came looking for him, but instead of going to jail, the strangest thing happened. Everything in Robert Lefebvre's life took a turn for the better. Declassified FBI documents later showed that Lefebvre became an FBI informant and propagandist at the onset of Cold War hysteria and McCarthyism. Now, suddenly, everything went his way. The underworld partner in his hotel property swap was found dead of a bullet wound to his head, was ruled a suicide. Meanwhile, Republican Party bosses in Southern California tapped Lefebvre to run for Congress as their red-baiting Republican. He lost in the primary but uh, was hustled off to his next gig working for a union-busting outfit that red-baited Hollywood liberals. Lefebvre vanished from town and appeared shortly afterwards in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, working with the local FBI bureau, developing a news program for a TV station. Recently declassified documents reveal that he collaborated extensively with the FBI at the height of McCarthyism, working as both an informant and as a propagandist. He collaborated to develop the TV news show, cleared his scripts with his FBI handler, and cleared the names of on-air guests with the FBI. Lefebvre's collaboration was reviewed by a long sought-after interview with his hero, Joseph McCarthy, at the height of his terror campaign. He also shamelessly abused his relationship with his powerful handlers to destroy his enemies, no matter how petty the offence. And it's hard to tell when one article stops and another one starts here, but I, I think we're, this is another article now. Not Just one more reason why Charles Koch and libertarians don't like the rest of the world knowing too much about libertarianism's founding father, Robert Lefebvre. Why did Lefebvre rise from the desperate world of cults and fraud to such prominence so quickly? After World War II, corporate America waged war on the countervailing power of New Deal government, labor unions, and leftist ideology. The weapons in that war were red-baiting McCarthyism and corporate America's economic might. What they lacked was talent, willing collaborators to wage their war on Americans. After Americans fought and defeated the Axis powers and the Great Depression, they weren't easily persuaded to turn against their compatriots or governments to do corporate America's dirty work. Idealism and trust in government were high. The power of potential rats and snitches was extremely limited. The only people corporate America could reliably hire to front their war on the New Deal were dregs like Lefebvre, crooks, fraudsters, degenerates, bankrupts, people so desperate or so compromised they had no choice or no soul. Lefebvre was all of that. He then uh, went on to, uh, to be hired as the vice president of one of the best-funded right-wing lobbying outfits of the post-war era, the National Economic Council, whose leader was not only a self-described libertarian, but also a fascist sympathizer and anti-Semite. Few Americans today know the name Merwin K. Hart, but in his day he was the most notorious and dangerous fascist sympathizer in America and one of the first major Holocaust deniers. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, who prosecuted the Nuremberg trials, called Hart America's leading fascist. 
After the war, he engineered the 1946 election of Joseph McCarthy and waged a red-baiting culture war through the National Economic Council, which was funded by some of the biggest names in corporate America, including the DuPonts, Monsanto, Sears, and the melon-controlled Gulf Oil. It was Merwin K. Hart's NEC that destroyed the career of America's most promising Keynesian economist, Laurie Tarshis, in the late 40s. In 1958, Merwin K. Hart drew up plans for the John Birch Society and handed it over to a younger reactionary business lobbyist named Robert Welsh. Welsh recruited Charles Koch's father, Fred Koch, as one of his two founding directors of the John Birch Society. Merwin K. Hart was honoured as the JBS head of the New York chapter until his death. Right up to the end, Lefebvre praised Merwin K. Hart as a great libertarian, one of the few conservative voices who had consistently supported constitutional government, humane liberty, and free enterprise system. Lefebvre and Christian nationalism triumph. The Reporter, 1956. A few of, of Lefebvre's campaigns for Merwin K. Hart at the National Economic Council involved campaigns attacking the United Nations and fighting internationalism. A foreign policy is perhaps the most valuable place in which to attack the red influence in this country, Lefebvre explained in a letter. We must oppose the trend toward internationalism if we are to preserve our union. He, uh, his highlight of his time at the Congress of Freedom it was in 1955 when he forced the United Nations to cancel a meeting in San Francisco by timing a Congress of Freedom meeting at the same time. <clears throat> uh, Lefebvre's point man in his San Francisco triumph was Willis Cato, the founder of America's neo-Nazi movement. In later years, Willis Cato launched David Duke's political career and he founded the leading Holocaust denier outfit, the Institute for Historical Review. Lefebvre was fully aware of his rabid anti-Semitism and neo-Nazi leanings, but as with Merwin K. Hart, it didn't seem to bother him except as bad strategy. In 1956, after Cato learnt, launched his first rabidly anti-Semitic racist newsletter called Right, Lefebvre sent him a congratulatory letter. Dear Willis, I am more and more impressed with Right. There has long been a need for such publication as this, and it seems to me that you are filling the bill. If you can keep on the ball, you should have an ever-increasing circulation. I certainly hope that you do. <laughs> it was only years later when uh, Willis Carto questioned free trade policies that Lefebvre felt compelled to criticise him. I was very sorry to see you advocate for tariffs, Willis, and I suspect you will live long enough to regret it. In 1956, he founded a far-right... Uh, in 1956, a far-right newspaper magnate named R.C. Hoylis bought Lefebvre at Colorado Springs and gave him a job as an as editorial writer to his Colorado Gazette, run by his son, Harry Hoyles. Colorado Gazette was part of the Hoyles Freedom newspaper chain, notorious for dividing communities across the country and for spewing anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, anti-democracy, and anti-labor vitriol. Freedom newspaper columnists included Nazi sympathizers. R.C. Hollies was so far to the right, he makes Rupert Murdoch look like Rachel Maddow. In the same year, also in Colorado Springs, Lefebvre helped Hollies to set up the Freedom School. The school's early board of fellows reads like a who's who of the post-war far right. Holocaust denier Merwin K. Hart, Lefebvre's former boss, Roger Milliken, the pro-segregationist textile mandate who bankrolled William Buckley's National Review and later helped 
uh, lead the John Birch Society, and retired Brigadier General Bonner Fellers, the radical right winger demoted by Eisenhower early in World War II for inadvertently leaking British war plans to the Nazis. Rommel, who benefited from the leak, affectionately referred to Fellers as my bony fella. His obsession with ideologies didn't stop there, though. He expanded on his uh, libertarian views and ended up adopting the views of R.C. Hoyleys, which he referred to as voluntarist, uh, which was ba- is basically libertarianism as a religion, I suppose. I mean, it, it is just libertarianism, but like with a name. It just supposes public funding of anything civil rights, any laws that, that stop people from doing anything, I suppose, and tax. Um, and it was adopted wholesale by Lefebvre, and he repackaged it, called it uh, or- Autarchy, but uh, unfortunately Autarchy was actually a name um, used by Italian, Germans, and Spanish fascists in the 30s to describe a self-reliant totalitarian system. And it was used in later years to um, describe the economic system of tyrants like Idi Amin and Pol Pot. So the label was quietly dropped from the libertarian lexicon and voluntarism was picked back up. Now today describes a small but thriving faction of anti-state libertarian free marketeers, many of whom have been sponsored and trained in Coke-funded programs. Today in Keene, New Hampshire, Thousands of libertarians live in a voluntarist commune called Free Keen, the brainchild of a Mercator Center economist founded by Charles Koch. But the Freedom School uh, grew, and it became the world's libertarian indoctrination camp. Checks poured in from other funders, including an anti-Semitic steel magnate named Robert Donner, the Kochs, Adolf Kors, the DuPont-backed Curran Foundation, Deering Milken, and even GE executive Lemile Boulware, the man responsible for hiring Ronald Reagan as GE spokesman. The pro-business lobby had been talking about creating an outfit like the Freedom School since the end of World War II. Polls taken in the mid to late 40s showed that the American public was wary of big business while support for government programs and labor unions was high. Businesses poured hundreds of millions into a propaganda campaign fronted by lobbying outfits like the Foundation for Economic Education and Merwin K. Hart's National Economic Council, both of which contributed to the propaganda. The FEE specialised in the mass production of libertarian pamphlets and books. Merwin K. Hart's group fell more on the red-baiting terror side, pressuring schools and universities. Different pro-business outfits served different segments of the population. The purpose of the Freedom School was to indoctrinate an elite hardcore of future executives and leaders in a radicalized free market ideology, a sort of corporate Komsomol vanguard. The biggest challenge was to convict the public that these uh, the biggest challenge was to convince the public that these advocates of a pro-business ideology were honest and authentic. The promoters of this laissez-faire anti-government campaign had to look as if their interest was purely intellectual, not underhanded and mercenary. They couldn't appear to seem like the corporate pitchmen they were. That was an understandable worry for outfits like the Foundation for Economic Education, which libertarians often point to as the origins of their movement. Congressional investigations in the late 40s exposed the FEE as the most generously funded of all the conservative pressure groups of its time. 
boosting a donor list that included 16 of America's 50 largest corporations, the big three car makers, it's no surprise, five of the eight largest steel companies, General Electric and DuPont, Standard Oil, Chase Bank, Union, Carbide, and so on. The head of the FEA was an old Chamber of Commerce pitch man named Leonard Reed, one of the first propagandists that he hired to churn out pro-business pamphlets, was the libertarian guru Ludwig von Mises. The library and literature at Lefebvre's Freedom School was stacked with Foundation for Economic Education Literature, paid for by DuPont donations. Members of the FEA board included George Gallup's partner in his polling business and a future chairman of the notorious United Fruit Company. I'm always worried about... <laughs> I'm always... What I do, right, when I'm researching things, I'll... Like, 90% of what I just read there, I hadn't read until just then. But I'll, um, you know, I'll be researching... Because I'll just be researching, like, names together and and uh half reading things and then and then filing them away for later so roughly sort of categorizing them and and based on the headline and usually I'll copy and paste like a paragraph as well so I've kind of got a vague idea of what it's about and have them in a vague order um to go through and every bloody time I do it it ends up uh I end up somewhere I didn't expect to be and here we are. So, my, I mean, oh, so much to unpack. Jesus. So, libertarianism is. Essentially, just a continuation of the cult, the Nazi religion, but worships freedom. What? <clears throat> and this Lefervre guy that comes out of I am through the people he gathers together at the Freedom School spawns the John Birch Society. Which is what starts spreading all these New World Order conspiracy theories and just anti-communist everything. Uh, I, I don't know the relationship. I don't know much about the World Anti-Communist League. But uh, when I've read about it, because, you know, it is, it, it's always mentioned like in books and stuff about this period of time, this like 70s, 80s type period, anti-communist, height of the Cold War stuff. You know, they're always mentioned, they're never really like elaborated on too much, but it's always sort of hand in hand with the John Birch Society. So we'll have to go into them, maybe examine their relationship at another point, but 
They're both still around. Uh, very unsettling this stuff. <clears throat> and we've barely even scratched the surface. I've just, I've just listened to all that again, all those articles again. Uh, just to, and I still don't really even know how to process it. I'm going to have to, I mean, when you consider that, like, when you consider this, this, uh, there was a big groundswell of support for the Nazis. Very, I mean, it's exactly the same as what's going on now with like Russia. There was, you know, Nazi cutouts all through America. Um, but rich, very rich people, um, supporting propaganda efforts and all this stuff. And a lot of support in the business community for fascism because not, uh, you know, not, not as outwardly today. I, I don't know. Sometimes I think, um, otherwise, but. Not as not as outwardly today, for sure, uh, but uh, you know there was this there was this huge um, like radicalization of of uh, the big money in America thanks to the New Deal, which I don't get. I mean, it sounds stupid to me because it's like they're still rich, and why do you need everyone else to just be poor as fuck? Um, this was saving America from the Great Depression, and it did wonders for America. It did wonders for these people. They all got jobs. They got them the fucking money. Anyway. <clears throat> you consider that that was there, and that obviously didn't go away, looking at um, Lefebvre here, Lefebvre here, but... Uh, You can ask Gobi said, like, Operation Paperclip was a thing. You've got these, you've got people like Lefebvre who are Nazi supporting, you know, cult running fascists, uh, supporting the Nazis before the war, then going and serving in the special forces. Then at the end of the war, when the Soviets defeated the Nazis, the Americans went in and heard that, uh, or maybe learnt that, Soviets had uh, kept, had captured some scientists because the Nazis were, well, Germans, you know, are pretty good at engineering. You know, the Nazis were working on some uh, aircraft that they designed, like, uh, fighter jet type things it has been said that a bunch of this stuff that the germans had just finished and were in production to be rolled out and deployed in the war if they had have got that far then they 
probably would have been able to fight the Allies off. So understandably, I guess, in that context, and, and that's how it's you know always been portrayed as a, as a noble pursuit, but the Americans did just gut the uh, science and like engineering community, but also a lot of these people were top-ranking Nazis. There was also a contingent that came to Australia, um, apparently. And, uh, and, you know, England as well. Um, many countries. Most went to South America that managed to get out. Very few were involved in the Nuremberg trials. Heinrich Himmler himself, um, there's questions there around, around his death or around how he died. You know, there was nothing too suspicious about it, but they could not identify him. There's a guy who's done really good research on um, a lot of this, um, a lot of these sort of ambiguous events from the end of World War Two. Uh, his name is Mark Felton, M A R K F E L T O N, uh, and he's on YouTube. But anyway, Himmler was, I find it interesting that Heinrich Himmler, not only was he the leader of the SS and the architect of the Holocaust, but he was also really into this occult shit. And <clears throat> I find it really interesting that while the Nazis were doing all this crazy engineering and not only engineering like weapons and planes and all that, but things that look to look like exactly like the description of UFOs that started uh, popping up around America in the late 40s and then throughout the 50s and beyond. And <clears throat> And concurrent to that, we have the rise of well, we have these these attempted rises of this like shape shifting cult, like the silver shirts into I am into libertarianism that uh, from I am onwards, they're all also obsessed. They're all obsessed with UFOs. And there's, you know, the Mount Shasta is one of the most active UFO places in the world. Uh, just curious. And So he Himmler actually in nineteen thirty-three he took over this castle called Woolsburg Castle. And 
initially it was the training facility for the SS. <clears throat> and then this is from the website of the castle of Wolfsburg. Many prominent Nazi leaders hearken back to mythology and legend to influence their plans for world domination. Himmler himself was fascinated with prophecy and magical power and desperately wanted to set up a facility to teach these values to SS soldiers. He began working on Wolfsburg into He began working to turn Wolfsburg into a non-military training facility focused on the occult and pagan rituals. Himmler viewed Wolfsburg as the Grail Castle and believed that when the Nazis were the rulers of the entire world, artifacts from the castle would radiate magic power. Much work was put into acquiring such artifacts as the Spear of Destiny, which Hitler himself claimed showed him his future. Along with artifacts from around the world that the SS were working to acquire, Wolfsburg became the centre of a number of pagan rituals led by Himmler. Although the exact nature of the rituals are unknown, it's clear that baptism-like rituals took place and a former cistern in the castle was turned into a crypt and also used for rituals. After the Allies took control of the castle, a round table with 12 chairs was also discovered, a reference to King Arthur and his knights. It's all very creepy. <clears throat> So, so as the um, Freedom School Libertarian uh, Great Awakening is happening and the uh, covert fascist pro-Nazi anti-Semitic business class of America is uh, working on their anti-union and regulation uh, cult. Another uh, version of this uh, take on theosophy um, rolling on from I am Uh, and it's called The Church, Universal and Triumphant. I am here, O oh God, and I am the instrument of those sevenfold rays and archangels, and I will not retreat. I will take my stand. I will not fear to speak, and I will be the instrument of God's will, whatever it is. Here I am, so help me God, in the name of Archangel Michael and his legions, I am freeborn, and I shall remain freeborn, and I shall not be enslaved by any foe within or without. That was Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and she was the main um, figure, the Church Universal Triumphant. But speaking of Archangel Michael and his legions, he doesn't like to refer to himself, so he leaves that name out. But this is retired General Michael Flynn. 
We are your instrument of those sevenfold rays and all your archangels, all of them. We will not retreat. We will not retreat. We will stand our ground. We'll, we will not fear to speak. We will be the instrument of your will, whatever it is. In your name, and the name of your legions, we are freeborn, and we shall remain freeborn, and we shall not be enslaved by any foe, within or without. So help me God. God bless you. God bless America. Thank you very much. Now, playing those two clips side by side without the mountain of context that has come before it in this podcast and previous podcasts is the reason why people can so easily smear Jim Stewartson as a conspiracy theorist. But something that I've never, I've never heard or read or anything that I only feel comfortable saying because of all this context is Mike Flynn has like this alias online that he like comments on like his I think he's like his telegram alias is Archangel Michael that's like his little reference for himself and Brucardo Bosi has one too and it's Richard the first now there might be some history buffs out there that might recognize the significance of Richard the Lionheart in this context but Archangel Michael is not just mentioned in that prayer Archangel Michael is the the angel the archangel so I guess the uh, I don't fucking know here's someone who knows what they're talking about Due to the leadership role he holds, many recognize Michael as the greatest among the seven. Some even argue that Michael is the only true archangel. The epistle of St. Jude bestows this title upon him. No other named angel in the Bible shares this honor. The idea of other archangels may have stemmed from Michael being called one of the chief princes in the book of Daniel. It suggests that there may be others who share his rank. Despite Michael's prominence, much of his background story is shrouded in mystery. Existing knowledge about the Archangel Michael is limited to the times his name pops up in the Bible. All in all, Michael's name appears four times in the religious text, twice in the book of Daniel, once in the epistle of St. Jude, and once in the book of Revelation. When the Archangel Michael is first mentioned in Daniel chapter 10, verses 10-14, the prophet identifies him as one of the chief princes, revealed to him by a vision. Michael appears a second time in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1-3. There he is said to be the great prince who will stand with the people during the end times. Meanwhile, Jude chapter 9 reveals that Michael was contending with the devil about the prophet Moses' remains. This mention of Michael is especially significant for two reasons. It is the first and only time Michael is referred to as an archangel, and it contains the only words Michael speaks in the Bible, directed at Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Lastly, Michael is mentioned in Revelation chapter 12 verse 7, described as the one leading the angels of heaven into battle against the dragon, the manifestation of Satan. The battle ends with Michael and his forces triumphant, throwing the devil and the angels he recruited down into the fiery pits of hell. A true badass god, dude. Archangel Michael is like the, the general of like heaven's army. And he's there for the for the for, to lead the the charge of the apocalypse. And then in the I Am stories, it starts with Archangel Michael. 
The Remembrance of I Am, An Inner Journey of Self-Discovery, a channel course from Archangel Michael. Dedication. This is dedicated to the Creator and the Creator's Messenger, Archangel Michael, for their infinite love, faith, and omnipresence. I think that's probably pretty fucking significant, seeing as this guy works for, literally, on Rush's payroll, is leading the army of digital soldiers around fucking QAnon, and is fucking not only reciting these prayers, linking with this, linking with these fucking I Am people, doing the same fucking shit as them, but... There's more that we haven't even gone into yet, which we'll also have to leave for another time because we're getting off track. But the Church Universal and Triumphant. So during the 50s, a, uh, a publishing company was started by a guy called Mark L. Prophet called the Summit Lighthouse. And it was formed uh, under the sponsorship of the Ascended Masters. So I don't know what that, I don't know if that, means that like the elders that were in charge of the seemingly dormant I am movement um, paid for the Summit Lighthouse to be founded or if that was just like you know it's just a thing that he's said that he's saying I don't know but uh, this is actually from from the website of the Church Universal Triumphant but it was founded in 1958 under the sponsorship of the Ascended Masters. And then it goes on to say, It has been our goal to bring liberation to all souls everywhere who seek spiritual freedom, to all those who sense their own innate divinity and wish to express and develop it. To further this goal, Church Universal and Triumphant was established in 1975 and has since become a worldwide resource for the teachings of the Ascended Masters. The teachings we espouse are universal, bringing the wisdom of great spiritual traditions of both East and West. We have always honoured and respected free will and the right to choose whatever beliefs resonate in each heart and soul. We have remained steadfast in our determination to spread the message of spiritual universality to all who desire it worldwide. And we intend to continue until this mission is fulfilled. Um, which all sounds very well and good. The Church Universal and Triumphant, the largest of several groups that emerged from I Am religious activity, a movement centered upon avowed contact with the Ascended Masters of the Great White Brotherhood, the Order of Spiritual Beings, the saints robed in white, that adherents believe guide the overall destiny of humankind. The Church was founded by Mark L. Prophet, and after his death was led by his wife, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, until her retirement in 1999. Like many new religious movements, it's faced great criticism, but it has managed to survive and grow. Although it doesn't release statistics on membership, it's reasonable to conclude there are, there are between 30,000 and 50,000 members uh, across the world. So the church began as the Summit Lighthouse under the leadership of Prophet, who had formerly been associated with the Lighthouse of Freedom, another I Am organization. He claimed to regularly receive messages from the Masters, which were then published in the periodical Pearls of Wisdom and mailed to followers around the world. Following her husband's death, Elizabeth Clare Prophet soon reorganized the movement as the Church Universal and Triumphant and moved its headquarters to Southern California in 1976 and then to its present location in Montana in 1986. Church believes in the I Am, or God Presence. 
As a result of the messages Elizabeth Clare Prophet reputedly received from the Masters, she synthesized insights from all the major religious traditions in the Church's teachings. However, the faith's basic goal is to purify the self in preparation for the ascension into the divine realms. In the 1980s, the Church attracted critics who complained it was a cult. The criticism escalated after Prophet announced that widespread disasters could occur in the early 1990s, for which Prophet prepared by building bomb shelters on the Church's property in Montana. When this period of concern passed, Church leaders began an extensive self-study that led to a complete reorganization of the church. And they kind of drop off the radar from after that. They do this like reorganization. And then um, Elizabeth Clare Prophet eventually died. And this guy, Gilbert Clare Moore, Bo Bout, um, he took over, but in 1999, he handed it over to just like it's, they said, a new group of people. Uh, and then there's another article on that same website that says the man who oversaw several organizational changes in the church, universal and triumphant, and said it was his goal to move the sometimes controversial New Age sect more into the mainstream is resigning as president. It was announced on Friday. In previous interviews, Clebo talked about, uh, talked frankly about, in previous interviews, he talked frankly about the financial problems of the church, his desire for it to be seen as a more mainstream religion and less as a cult, and the need to move away from what was once the centralized leadership of Elizabeth Clare Prophet, whose late husband founded the church. According to the release, uh, he told church members that at the organization's 40th annual summer conference being held in Paradise Valley, that many of the changes that he intended to make are in place. He oversaw the consolidation and elimination of many jobs within the organization and the selling of many of its assets and land holdings. The goal, officials said, is to take focus away from the headquarters and spread the religion through its more than 200 teaching centers worldwide. Gilbert was like the midwife appointed to assist the birth of a new life cycle for our organization, said board member and minister Neroli Duffy. Now that the baby is delivered, like any good midwife, Gilbert is handing the baby over to the next team of people who can help oversee the process of infancy and growth. And that, like in my, you know, night of poking around the internet, I gave it a good stab. It's pretty much all I could find. And I couldn't find anything about who this team of people overseeing the um, process of infancy and growth are. So I asked ChatGTP, <laughs> why the fuck not? And it told me, from 1999 until 2000, Elizabeth Clare Prophet's daughter, Erin Prophet, served as leader of the Church Universal Triumphant. However, in 2000, Erin Prophet resigned from the organization and the leadership structure was reorganized. Since then, the organization has been led by a group of senior members known as the Council of Elders, who collectively make decisions about the direction and activities of the organization. Wasn't there something about like the Council of Elders being the esoteric one, sort of like in, into like alchemy and stuff? What's that? 
think there was something about that last time. I don't know. And I'm too lazy to check. So that's pretty much it. Like, like the website's still around. It says it's active. I guess it's working through. It's like teaching centers or whatever it was talking about. But in terms of like a public record of, of I am or the church universal triumphant, it's pretty much where it ends. But it is uh, about the time that the story of our current I am uh, representatives in this context um, starts. And we'll have a look at that next time. I'm actually cutting this episode in two, letting this end bit at the end here. Um, because it does go for a long time. So look at those. What happened from here to today, or at least, um, yeah. We'll look at what happened from here with the representatives of this whole thing um, next time. But for now, um, I have found a couple of other little offshoots of um, theosophy along the way. So, I mean, it seems like theosophy has been fairly influential in any religion that's not specifically like part of the Judeo-Christian framework. For example, Scientology. I'll just read a little bit about um, Scientology. I found a paper examining the relationship between uh, between Theosophy and Scientology. It says, L. Ron Hubbard never specifically gave credit to Elena Blavatsky, for the, uh, but the imprint of her work on his lectures and writings is remarkable. For example, in Hubbard's Road to Truth lecture, he compares the limitations of modern physics and chemistry in the same manner as Blavatsky in her book, The Secret Doctrine. Hubbard also lectured on the reality of Atlantis in the same way as Blavatsky. There are dozens of other interconnections between Hubbard's extensive works and Blavatsky's Isis Unveiled, but only a few of the most important will be mentioned in this paper. It will be argued that most of Scientology's doctrine was derived from the basic natural science model, augmented by Hubbard's 1920s defined science fiction imagination. It is certainly possible to consider selections of Blavatsky's work, written before the 19th century, before the term was defined as science fiction, and in reality, Blavatsky and Hubbard share a common literary genre. I've just found a new little offshoot a bit closer to home. You might be familiar with a New Age cult in Australia formed in the mid-60s called The Family. Uh, it was also called the Santinikitan Park Association and the Great White brotherhood this is the thing with all this stuff like this is obviously based on theosophy like obviously it's caught they literally call themselves the great white brotherhood it's a new age cult but then i'm just on the wikipedia page but like it you know it's like the same thing with himmler it's like oh they were into an eclectic mix of christianity and hinduism with other eastern and western religions um uh, on the principle that spiritual truths are universal. It's like, it's just, it's theosophy. These guys were based in the Dandenong Ranges in Melbourne. The group consisted of middle-class professionals. A quarter of them were estimated to be nurses, 
other medical personnel um, or from the sort of surrounding suburbs somewhere in the area called the White Lodge, somewhere up around Alinda or something like that. That's crazy. There's an interview of her, of Carl Stefanovic interviewing the head of this cult back in 2009. I can't find the video, but there's a transcript of it on the internet archives. I don't know. Been taken off the 60 Minutes website. I just came across that accidentally whilst looking for this other group that I wanted to talk about, which is the Brotherhood of the White Temple. It's the same thing. They're into these like emerald tablets of Thoth the Atlantean, which is the same stuff that Himmler was into. Don't know much about them. They don't give much away, but they've got a real fancy looking church in Colorado. And uh, I think it is worth pointing out here because I'm just kind of thinking about it and I don't think I have yet that they don't mean like, obviously it can be taken that way. And I'm pretty sure it was by the Germans, but it, the great white brotherhood doesn't refer to white skinned people or even men as I've seen it described by them. Illuminated beings of light so illuminati bad illuminated beings of light controlling your life from the shadows good so not confusing at all and um on its website it says welcome to shambhala the brotherhood of the white temple is a metaphysical church founded in 1930 by dr m dorial based on the universal brotherhood of man the Brotherhood is also an internationally acclaimed metaphysical organization nestled in the Colorado Rocky Mountains. Gosh, I'm finding a lot of interesting stuff. So there's the Ascension Research Center. And even though it's the Ascension Research Center, it, and it claims to be like you know, scientific uh, research, it does state the Ascension Research Center does not guarantee the accuracy of any content on this site. The word of the Ascended Masters is the ultimate authority in any question relating to truth. That's pretty funny because that is separating truth and accuracy. The Aetherius Society is another one. It's a spirit, international spiritual organization decided to, uh, de dedicated to spreading and acting upon the teachings of advanced extraterrestrial intelligences. In great compassion, these beings recognize the extent of suffering on Earth and have made countless sacrifices in their mission to help us create a better world. It was created in the 50s by an Englishman. And, you know, as crazy as it is, seems relatively harmless. And this is the thing, like, I'm, there's nothing wrong with the teachings behind this stuff. It just seems like the I am version especially. But these guys, I find the most... Um, Interesting of the lot, um, because they uh, predate all of them, including Ariosophy, and they have quite a fancy looking um, headquarters here as well. Again, in, in Colorado, I'll just read the Britannica entry. Yeah, so the Brotherhood of the White Temple is a theosophical occult organization founded in 1903 in Denver, Colorado. This guy claimed to have made contact with the Great White Lodge. Um, he spent eight years in Tibet, 
during the 20s, apparently. That's what qualified him. There's a common theme I'm seeing here. They're all obsessed with Tibet. Himla went on expeditions to Tibet. Um, I've seen Tibet mentioned in, in um, a whole bunch of this stuff. Yeah, it might be something to do with esoteric Buddhism. I'm not sure, but I'm going to put it on the to research list because I'm going to have to do a follow-up to this. Just have to take a couple of episodes to refresh my head from all these this stuff, and then I'll, we'll come back to it, and, and I'll, I'll uh, start sort of crop cross-referencing some things and see um, see what these guys are about, what their fascination with Tibet was, and so on and so forth. This is the the East-West Church Ministry Report from summer 1994, covering the former Soviet Union and East Central Europe. Alarming cults such as the Great White Brotherhood provided both a look at the spiritual searching of post-communist society and a frightening Russian national spin on Western extremist cults. Such groups hold strong and powerful appeal, especially in light of emerging nationalist sentiment, as the governments of Russia and Ukraine struggle to frame legislation relating to religion, how they handle extremist cults may determine their interpretation of religious liberty for all minority religious groups. The leaders of one of Ukraine and Russia's new religious movements, the Great White Brotherhood, predicted the end of the world for November 14, 1993. The new religion's founder, Maria Devi, former Komsomol leader, uh, remained in Kiev, awaiting an apocalyptic end. Many of the followers abandoned their homes, prompted and distraught parents to appeal to local authorities as well as the Ministry of Internal Affairs to help them get their children back. Leading up to the date, the leader was all prepared to be crucified and resurrected in Kiev as part of a last judgment, but rumours spread of impending acts of terrorism and of mass suicide. Parents in Kiev were afraid to allow their children on the streets. In response, Ukraine's president gave government authorities power to expel non-residents from Kiev. Authorities detained or arrested hundreds of followers of the Great White Brotherhood. I was talking about this Wolfsburg Castle, where Himmler had his, um, his center for Ariosophy. And uh, I was just looking through some photos of that. They've got a tiled mosaic on the floor of the main room, which is just a massive, um, you know, the black sun symbol. If you don't know what it is, you would have seen it on, uh, you know, remember Pete Evans shared a meme that got him banned from everything and his books stopped being sold in shops. Um, it was for it containing the black sun symbol. Also, you find it on the front cover of the, um, Manifesto of the Christchurch Shooter, which was called The Great Replacement. But, you know, he had this castle, and he just uses the headquarters for this uh, occult side of the Nazis. And while we're speaking of Russia, quite unsettling, um, I'll just read this article from 2018. The club that wants Russia to take over the world, a small group of intellectuals, working on a blueprint for a new Russian empire. Last fall, a prominent right-wing Russian newspaper published a fictional story about an underground movement supposedly conspiring to get Vladimir Putin elected as Germany's next chancellor. It was just a few days before the country went to the polls, with their real chancellor, Angela Merkel, facing unprecedented threats from the radical right as she bid for her fourth term. 
The inspiration for the piece seems to have come from a report on a Swedish right-wing site which claimed the posters had appeared in the German capital Berlin with the slogan Vote Putin, but upon closer examination, it was clear the photo used had been doctored and the posters themselves might not have physically existed. It looked like a textbook case of online misinformation, but it nonetheless stirred debate, creating the impression it might be true simply because it had been published. That the story was in Zavtra gave it extra weight because the newspaper's editor, Andrew Prokhanov, is also head of an increasingly influential ultra-nationalist think tank known as the Izborsky Club, a self-described intellectual circle of philosophers, journalists, business people, and orthodox priests dedicated to promoting Russian power. They call themselves Izborists and claim to seek a more just world order, but with clear ambitions to put Russia at the centre. And since the club was created six years ago, he and its members have been working hard to try and make their ideas a cornerstone of Kremlin policy. Named after the town where it was conceived, the club advocates Eurasianism, expanding Moscow's control and influence over a region encompassing the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and parts of Asia. The resulting empire would eventually overthrow the West and the democratic values it stands for. In order to achieve this, the club also calls for Stalin-style industrialization policies converting the Eurasian Economic Union into an autarky and merging the government with the Russian Orthodox Church. They don't limit themselves to Zavtra, but also make full use of the openness of the internet and a host of other supportive sites to get their message out. They make regular appearances on television and at conferences too. It's arguably the first successful initiative to bring all the competing factions of Russians far right together under one umbrella. So that was 2018, but we can see that by 2021, they'd fleshed some stuff out. They started to uh, create a bit of a story. And this is from an article in The Conversation. Russian Cosmism, a national mythology against transhumanism. Cosmism, a complex intellectual movement that blends orthodox theology with scientific forecasting, emerged almost 150 years ago and is once again on the rise in Russia. Part of the country's elite holds cosmism as a distinctively Russian response to the supposedly dominant transhumanism in the West. But what is cosmism? And how is it spreading in Russia today? At the end of the 19th century, Russian thinker Nikolai Fyodorov defended a deeply moral and Christian philosophy of science. He imagined that humanity could employ technological progress to achieve universal salvation. According to him, scientific advances could be used to resuscitate ancestors, achieve immortality, transform human nature towards its defecation, and finally conquer and regulate the cosmos. It really is a libertarian nightmare. After Fyodor, renowned Russian scientists such as the forerunner of cosmonautics or the founder of geochemistry built up on his futuristic and spiritual vision of the technical process. In the 70s, a group of Soviet intellectuals became passionate about the esoteric thesis of these authors and brought them together under the name of Russian Cosmism. In contrast with the official communist ideology, Cosmism was a heterodox theory. It nevertheless aroused the interest of academics as well as high-ranking members of the political and military establishment. One of these was Lieutenant General Alexei Savin, the director of the secret unit 10003, in charge of research in the military use of paranormal phenomena from 1989 to 2003. Inspired by his reading of Vendasky, he developed the principles of a science of the extraterrestrial world called neocosmology. 
Likewise, in 1994, Vladimir Rubanovov, Deputy Secretary of the Russian Security Council and former director of the KGB's analytical department, proposed to use Cosmism as the basis of Russia's national identity. The Aborsky Club. Cosmism as a Russian national ideology. Today, it still serves as a source of inspiration for ideologies or ideologues in search of a national idea for post-Soviet Russia. The legacy of Cosmist thought is particularly claimed by a conservative think tank close to power, the Izborsky Club, which was created in 2012. It brings together about 50 academics, journalists, politicians, entrepreneurs, clerks, and ex-military around an imperialist and anti-Western agenda, supported in part by funding provided by the presidential administration. The Izborsky Club aims to define an ideology for the Russian state. In this regard, members of the club consider science as an ideological battlefield within which Russia must oppose its own technocratic mythology to the Western model of development, which they associate with transhumanism, a concept behind which members of the Iborsky Club rank both explicit advocates of transhumanism, such as Elon Musk and any worldview that derogates from their vision of traditional societies such as feminism, globalization, or sustainable development. It's interesting because a lot of these Western transhumanist thinkers, such as Elon Musk, identify Fyodov as the prophet of their quest for immortality. But the Iborsky Club, on the contrary, claims the specific Russian character of cosmism and its intimate connection with the historical mission of the Russian people. Basically, these, these were ideas being thrown around in these elite circles of Russia before the revolution in um, at the start of the 1900s. And obviously it was put on the back burner with the Soviets, but now the Soviets are gone and they're looking to strengthen their Russian identity. They've landed on this uh, as, uh, as the go because they can, they can harken back to 100 years previous when it was spoken about. So it seems like it's got a bit of a history to it. Uh, it goes on to say, a vision increasingly shared at the highest levels of power. The Iborsky Club is connected to influential power networks that allow the, the circulation of its ideas. In July 2019, Alexander Prokhanov was invited to the Duma, the Russian parliament, to present his film, Russia, Nation of Dream, in which he promoted his vision of a national scientific and spiritual mythology. The Iborsky Club is also close to key figures in the conservative elites, the monarchist oligarch Konstantin Malafiev and Dmitry Rogozin, director of the Roscosmos Space Agency. Finally, it has access to the military-industrial complex. As a witness of these links, a strategic bomber carrier of missiles, Tupolev-295MC, was named after the club in 2014. Beyond the Izborsky Club itself, references to cosmism permeate the discourse of the highest authorities. Valery Zorkin, president of the Constitutional Court, recently quoted a fervent advocate of cosmism in his speech at the 9th St. Petersburg International Legal Forum in 2019. He called for a broadened broadened meaning of the common destiny of the Russian people written in the constitution to a more general acceptance tuned towards universal salvation. 
Cosmism, therefore, serves as the foundation for a new Russian national mythology that matches the two imperatives of the current regime, technological race for power and the definition of an alternative political model to Western modernity. Much more of a description of the actual, you know, what the actual beliefs are within that. But there is this paper written, Cambridge University Press. I don't have access to it, but you can read the abstract. It says, this article is about the cultural philosophical movement called Russian Cosmism and its current status in the Republic of Kalmykia, southwest Russia, home to the Buddhist Kalmyks, the people of Orient Mongol origin. Emerging in Russia in the early 20th century and suppressed during the Soviet period, this movement proliferated openly across Russia with the beginning of perestroika. Promulgated as an original product of the Russian mind, Cosmism positions itself as science of the truth and soul-searching, and purports to address various issues, including, but not limited to, the spiritual, psychic, and paranormal anxieties that are on the rise in Russia. Although it's an all-encompassing movement combining various elements of theosophy, philosophy, poetry, theories of evolution and energy, astrology, cosmology, ecology, and even science fiction, the article focuses on its more cosmic topics, those that are related to outer space, cosmic energies, and alien visitations. The story of Russian cosmism is not just a story of this particular move, mo, uh, movement, but also of science in Russia. So again, yeah, this one probably seems further from philosophy than anything else, but still based on it. But also, it's a UFO cult. Just kind of thinking out loud here as I'm reading this stuff and contemplating this technological and scientific view of religion. And I think what they're talking about is quantum physics because you see a lot of that in this, um, like this I am stuff or this stuff that sounds like it's from stems from I am stuff online around UFOs and, and all that, but like also, uh, well, I guess you'd call it, I've never really, I've always just kind of called it conspiracy. And I guess that's what it gets called, um, these days, but anything that's written in the encyclopedias referring to pastimes, it's called esoteric knowledge and the occult, a good, uh, mainstream modern day example of uh of that would be uh, might be like the secret and there was a movie um what was it called what the bleep do they know and that was that was very much uh quantum physics based there's one more noticeable uh noteworthy perhaps the most noteworthy strain of um theosophy and I'm not exactly sure how it relates, except for maybe it was the basis of Elena Blavatsky's ideas of theosophy, because it's been around since the ninth century, and it is Sufism, or as it's uh, as it's known, theosophical Sufism, and that is a branch of Islam, um, mostly found in Iran, um, but spread right out not exclusively and there's nothing within it that links it to any of these 
branches of theosophy we've gone over here, but other than it predates it and a lot of it was, was, was most likely ideas borrowed. Blavatsky um, herself wrote about Sufism. Um, she wrote, They claim, and very justly, the possession of the esoteric philosophy and doctrine of true Mohammedanism. The Sufi doctrine is a good deal in touch with theosophy, inasmuch as it preaches one universal creed and outward respect and tolerance for every popular esoteric, exoteric faith. It is also in touch with masonry. The Sufis have four degrees and four stages of initiation. And that'll have to do us for today. So what have we learnt? Well, I've learned more than I came into this recording knowing, that's for sure. So, the Silver Shirts were set up by a man known as America's Hitler the same time as the Nazis were going on talking about the same things, claiming to have received messages or met St. Germain on a, on a walk on Mount Shasta. And then he was jailed, and two of his followers, Guy and Edna Ballard, copied his story and started the I Am activity. And it seems like this is, uh, this, um, I guess because there's so much there already, because it sort of plays into these existing myths and, and um, you know, esoteric knowledge of history, which may or may not be true. The Atlantis stuff, for example, is uh, a bit of a stretch and something I don't think Plato was seriously suggesting there was a place called Atlantis. It's just something he was told. And they link it in with Egyptian mythology and there is some sort of ambiguous uh, references to different things which, um, you know, you can sort of string together to point to Atlantis, but there is zero evidence of a, any kind of civilization predating uh, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Um, so, you know, all this stuff, that these, are, these are stories that have been floating around forever. So it makes it interesting. It makes it, I guess it makes it easier for people to come into because these are popular myths in in the zeitgeist already and then also mixed with like all the useful parts from everyone's existing religions you can see how it's sort of a blueprint for a whole bunch of other cults that spring up and seemingly anyone else looking to follow the path of the germans in the 1930s and 1940s next time we're going to uh, look at the year 2000 through till today and sort of piece together a timeline of what's happened on the online space that seems like it's come from these people and, uh, and maybe we can verify something about that as well. Shouldn't be too far away because I initially recorded it as part of this episode and then had to add a couple extra bits in and then now this one goes for forever and so I, uh, I cut it all off. So I'll tie that one up and you should hear from it soon. In the meantime, stay grounded. But you don't have to stay grounded. Just don't ascend talk of a political dirt unit. It is typical of this government that uh, a dirt unit should be operating on me by someone in a ministerial suite in the Howard government. Embarrassing facts, uh, or factoids or stories uh, on the 
as I've said to Margie and the kids, we're going to see a lot more dirt, 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 dirt.